Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. My name is John Whitaker, and my goal here on the commentary is to provide down-to-earth Bible teaching in the language of everyday life so that you can follow Jesus in your everyday life. It's what I call blue jeans theology, and I'm so glad you're joining me here on the Gospel of Luke in the commentary. In this session, we are going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56, and just to make sure we don't lose the forest for the sake of the trees, this this little section is part of a larger section that's sort of like Act 1. Act 1 is the beginning of the story of Jesus, and it goes from uh, Luke 1.1 1, 1, all the way up through Luke 4.13. That's Act 1, and this is like Scene 2 of Act 1, where we're beginning and laying the groundwork for the story of Jesus. And here in scene two, we now shift to the north. In scene one, we were in Jerusalem, in Judea, specifically even in the temple. Now we head north to Galilee, to a small remote town called Nazareth. And that's where this scene takes place. So Luke chapter one, verse 26 reads this way. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. So the sixth month, that is, it's been six months since Gabriel had visited Zechariah in the temple and told them that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a son. In this case here, Gabriel is now off on another business trip for God, and this time he's headed to Nazareth. And Nazareth is about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. It's in Galilee, the northern region of Israel, centered around the Sea of Galilee. It's a small, little, insignificant town. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament, and it's not mentioned in Jewish writings of the day. Nazareth sat atop a hill overlooking a valley where a number of important Old Testament events took place. And its position on the hill kind of kept it isolated from many of the other towns in the area. And that, we're not sure, but that may have been intentional. The people of Nazareth may have wanted to kind of be withdrawn because Galilee was sort of known as Galilee of the Gentiles for a reason. It, it had a lot more Gentile influence. It had a lot more trade and travel from uh, Gentile lands. And, and it's possible that Nazareth was this small little remote town on purpose so that they could remain withdrawn and stay pure and faithful to God. Interestingly enough, however, Nazareth, even, even though it was uh, remote because of its location on a hill, was only a few miles from a major Greco-Roman city, the city of Sepphoris, uh, which was a, a massive Greek uh, culture, Roman city, just a few miles away from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. In fact, it's even reasonable to assume, though we don't know for sure, but it's reasonable to assume that Jesus and his dad would have worked on construction projects there, or at least Joseph, his dad, would have traveled to Sepphoris uh, to do some construction projects as a tecton, a carpenter and a stonemason, a woodworker, right, a builder of some sort. Um, that, that was Joseph's vocation, and it's possible Jesus actually went with him on some trips. In fact, um, 
some early church traditions has it that Mary's parents lived in Sepphoris, and maybe that would have motivated a visit there. So Jesus was surely familiar with Sepphoris because it was only a few miles away. In fact, Sepphoris sat up on a hill um, from which it had this uh, this bird's eye view of the surrounding land. In fact, its Jewish name was just the idea of being a bird, a bird perched on a hill. It may have even inspired Jesus' imagery of a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so Nazareth was up on a hill and remote. Sepphoris sat on a hill, but it was a very populous, important, in fact, Josephus calls it the largest city of the day. But Nazareth, Nazareth is in a very real sense, a little unimportant, off-the-grid kind of town, and it's to Nazareth that Gabriel is sent from God. Now, verse 27 goes on and says that Gabriel was sent to Nazareth, specifically to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The word virgin that shows up here literally is just a young woman of marriageable age. Normally, that included virginity, especially in Jewish culture, where that was a high value and high virtue. And so she is a young virgin who is engaged to a man named Joseph. And the idea of being engaged in their culture was much more formal and strict than ours. In fact, engagement was a legal contract, and to end it required divorce. And infidelity during this stage was still considered adultery. And so when we talk engagement, we're talking about a, a legal binding contract that required divorce. And so Mary is contractually uh, engaged to Joseph. And in their culture, um, at this stage, I would put Mary probably around 13 or 14 years old. That's typically when engagement and marriage happen, 13 or 14. So she is a young gal who is preparing to be married to a man by the name of Joseph. And notice Joseph here in verse 27 is described as of the descendants of David. That is, he's from the, the line of David, the royal line, the line from whom the Messiah is supposed to come. And coming in, verse 28 says, he, Gabriel, said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Notice that coming in. So apparently this took place indoors, indoors, and Gabriel appears to her with this note of greetings, this note of favor, and this note of saying, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she, Mary, was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. A couple things to note there. First off, notice that his greeting calls Mary favored one. And then again here in verse 30, he says, You have found favor with God. That's just significant that God, in looking for someone to bear and give birth to his son, Jesus, uh, looks for the right person, sees Mary in this small little off-the-grid town, this young gal, and it says she is favored by God. She has found favor. She's found grace and mercy with him. And so God is pleased with Mary and figures she is going to be a, the right mother for his son to carry this plan forward.
The other thing to note here is notice that uh, his name is given. This son that she's going to bear is given a name right from the get-go. You shall call his name Jesus. Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua, and that means Yahweh saves, God saves. And so his name communicates his mission. Yahweh saves. He's going to be the one through whom Yahweh is going to deliver and rescue and save his people. Gabriel goes on in verse 32 and says, And he, this child that Mary is going to bear, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, Most High is this exalted title for God. So your son, Mary, is going to be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is bombshell news, right? Like This is earth-shattering news. He is given the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob. Jacob is the founding father of Israel from the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with that, it's in the book of Genesis. Read that. Jacob is given the name Israel, and he's the founding father of the nation of Israel. And so he, this child of Mary, is going to be given the throne of his father, David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob. He's going to do so forever. His kingdom will have no end. All of this language um, echoes and harkens back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, written a thousand years earlier uh, as a promise to King David. And the promise there in 2 Samuel 7 to David is that he is going to have a lasting line, a lasting dynasty, that there will be someone reigning on the throne of David from the nation of Israel forever and ever and ever. And the, the ultimate fulfillment of that is here with Jesus the Messiah. And so Jews, as this promise unfolds, read 2 Samuel 7, and they realized God's going to send a great ruler, an ultimate son of David, a great and ultimate king, and his kingdom will have no end. And here Gabriel says, that is being fulfilled, Mary, in your child, in your son. And this language, when Gabriel says this and, and hearkens back to 2 Samuel 7, this language reminds us that we're actually in the middle of a story. We're we're not at the beginning of a story, though we're at the beginning of Luke's gospel. We're in the middle of a story. It's like watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy and starting on part three, the return of the king. And what happens in that part builds on and echoes the earlier parts of the story. It makes sense in the context of the earlier parts of the story. Well, that's very much what happens here in Luke's gospel and in the New Testament. We pick up in the middle of the story and we're building on and it makes sense in the context of the earlier parts of the story. Jesus, the promised child of Mary, is the fulfillment of promises and prophecies from centuries ago. And that's important for us to remember as we read this story, that we need the earlier context to hear this story well. So Gabriel comes, he tells Mary that you're going to have a child, that he's going to be the Messiah, the fulfillment of this promise made to David a thousand years earlier. In verse 34, Mary asks for clarification. Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? In view of the, the angel's response, 
the angel, Gabriel, doesn't respond to Mary the way Gabriel responded to Zechariah in scene one. There, uh, Gabriel made it very clear that Zechariah was responding with unbelief. Uh, Gabriel doesn't seem to sense unbelief in Mary. He seems to respond to her sensing she's asking for clarification, not doubting. And so she asked for clarification. How can this be since I'm a virgin? I mean, how can I have a child since I've been with no man, right? And Gabriel explains. He gives her the clarification she asks for. And Gabriel says in verse 35, then the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit's going to do this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called Son of God. He's already said that he's going to be Son of the Most High. Why is that? Well, it's because God himself, by his Spirit, is going to create this child in Mary. Uh, yes, you don't have all the components necessary for uh, having a child normally and naturally, don't worry, God's going to take care of it by his spirit. He will come, he will create this child within you. That's the idea. And thus he will be called son of the most high. And behold, here is the confirmation that God is on the move and God is going to do this. And behold, even now your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. So God's going to do this, Mary. God's going to create this little one within you. God's going to uh, form this child, and thus he will be called the Son of the Most High. And as proof that God is on the move in doing this, your, your relative Elizabeth, 80 or so miles away in the hill country of Judea, she is already conceived in her old age, and even though she was barren, she's now in her sixth month. Why? Because nothing will be impossible with God. Well, after Gabriel clarifies exactly how this is going to come about, Mary responds in verse 38, and her response is beautiful and amazing. Remember, Mary is a 13 or 14-year-old faithful young Jewish gal. And here's her response to what Gabriel has just said. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And Gabriel, the angel, departed from her. Notice Mary's response. Her response is, I'm the bond slave. I'm the servant of the Lord. That's the idea of bond slave. It's like, I have pledged myself to the Lord. I belong to him. I do whatever he asks. I am his slave. I am his servant. So I'm the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And Mary believes, Mary yields, and Mary submits, even though this is going to cost her. How is she going to explain and expect everyone to believe that she is pregnant and she hasn't been unfaithful to her spouse? This is going to cost her her honor. And in an honor and shame society, that is massive. Uh, this could cost her uh, her relationship to her family, certainly in her village. This is going to cost Mary. And yet her response is one of humble loyal submission and trust. It's a beautiful response that really displays, I think, why it is God knew Mary was the right woman for the job.
Behold, I'm the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And Gabriel departs. Now, at this point in time, Mary, based on what Gabriel said, wants to go share her experience and her joy with Elizabeth, who's in her sixth month and is having her own experience and her own joy as God is on the move. And so Mary packs up and heads south. So verse 39, now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country of Judea, to a city of Judah, uh, down south, and entered into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so as Mary arrives at Zechariah, and Elizabeth's house, the baby that Elizabeth is pregnant with leaps in her womb, jumps, kicks, moves in some sort of way, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And note this, this is important because we've seen this already, and this will continue to be true both in Luke and in Acts, that in Luke's writings, Luke and Acts, when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak. That's the typical pattern. And so we learn that one of the things the Spirit does is enable people to speak on behalf of God. And so Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? Well, in verse 42, she's going to speak. She says this. She cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And so Elizabeth pronounces this blessing upon Mary, prompted by the Holy Spirit. And she blesses Mary for her faith in believing God's word, blesses Mary Uh, and the fruit of her womb, because it is the work of God within her. Uh, She she celebrates the fact that her own baby, baby John, within her, um, he knows something's up, and he, too, leaped when when Mary came in and and greeted Elizabeth. And so uh, there's this connection between Mary and Elizabeth because of both of them experiencing the surprising work of God that indicates God's on the move and God's about to do something. Well, then Mary replies to Elizabeth's words with her own words. Uh, It's traditionally been called the Magnificat, and it's a classic. It's a classic in the form of a psalm of thanksgiving. So Mary replies to Elizabeth with a psalm of thanksgiving, praising God for what he's done for her and what he's doing through her for the the world itself. And Mary's words are loaded with Old Testament echoes and themes that celebrate God remembering the lowly. Listen to Mary's words, verse 46 and following. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. To exalt is to lift high, to elevate and to lift high. So Mary says, my soul, my inner being, myself, my person exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard, he's had regard for the humble state of his bond save, her lowliness, right? Her insignificance, like 
how is it that God should choose her? She's from a small, off-the-grid, out-of-the-way town. She's just an ordinary peasant girl, and yet God has had regard for the state of his bondservant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And it's true. We remember Mary, and we count her blessed for God's work in and through her. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And, verse 50, his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Notice there in verse 49 and 50 that as Mary is praising God, she recognizes that he's done great things for her. But the end effect of it is his mercy is going to be upon generation after generation for all of those who fear him, who revere him and honor him and are full with awe before his magnificence and his beauty and his greatness and his goodness. And so this work of God uh, is for Mary, but also for all who fear the Lord and go beyond it. She recognizes that. And so Mary is just one example of the way God works for his people. Um, she goes on and she says in verse 51, He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. For God to do mighty deeds with his arm, that means um, really God has stretched forth his arm and power to work on behalf of his people. It actually harkens back to the Exodus when God delivered his people with an outstretched arm. And so it refers to God acting to rescue his people, to save. And so God has stretched out his arm and done mighty things. He's scattered those who are proud. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's exalted those who are humbled. He has lifted up the humble. This is a consistent biblical theme, theme that, that God brings down the proud and he lifts up the humble. Mary is uh, exhibit A of that. Here is, she says, as a humble peasant bondservant girl, God has exalted her, given her this huge blessing, lifted her up, but he's brought down the high and the mighty and cared for the lowly. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and yet he sent the rich away empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Again, we need to remember that we're in the middle of a story, and there's been this ache and this longing among God's faithful, devout people for several centuries. When is God going to act? Israel's been under foreign occupation since uh, the Babylonian invasion, 500 years before Mary's time, and it's just been one foreign occupation after another, and at present, it's Rome. This has gone on for centuries. They know the promises, and they know the prophecies, and they're waiting for the final chapter in their story to be written. When is God going to act? And now he's finally acted, and so Mary celebrates that and says God's given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy for them as he spoke to our fathers, right? As he promised long ago. And then he says, or then Mary says to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 and onwards, Abraham is the fountainhead of this whole rescue operation that God has unleashed in the world. God called Abraham and said, through you, Abraham, and through your descendants, through your offspring, um, I'm going to bring a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Well, 
Mary recognizes it's happening now. The ultimate promise to Abraham is being fulfilled in and through my child. God's work through the offspring of Abraham is now uh, being reactivated in a culminating sort of way. And so Mary celebrates all of this in this psalm of thanksgiving. And that's important to note because that's really how this, this psalm functions in the context of Luke's gospel. And not just this one, but there'll be a, another psalm in the very next scene in the narrative. And the way we need to think about those is they're sort of like what would happen, say, in a musical. If you're watching a play and it's a musical, or you're watching a movie and it's a musical, um, those moments in a musical where all of a sudden the, the characters break out in song, that calls attention to that moment. That's a significant moment in the story. And the breaking out in song highlights that moment and celebrates it and invite us, the readers, to engage and celebrate too. Well, that's very much how these psalms function in the Gospel of Luke. And so Mary's psalm is like that moment in a musical, and she's celebrating God, and she's celebrating what God is up to, and that God is on the move. And including this here, what Luke is doing is he's engaging us and inviting us to celebrate along with her. God's at work. God's remembered his promises. God's on the move. God's bringing his rescue operation in the person of Jesus. And so we celebrate with Mary because of what God has done. And then this scene wraps up in verse 56 with the simple little chronological note. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned home. And at the end of those three months, uh, Elizabeth is preparing to give birth. Mary is about three months into her pregnancy, about ready to start the second tri trimester uh, of her pregnancy. And so she returns home back to Nazareth to wait until the moment when her child shall be born. And so what we see here in scene one and scene two of act one is two children being promised. John, who's going to play the role of Elijah, the forerunner to the Messiah, and Jesus, the Messiah. Two, two very different circumstances. An elderly couple who hasn't been able to have kids, and uh, Mary, a young peasant girl who's a virgin and engaged to be married and shouldn't be able to have children, but God has acted and God is on the move and God is carrying this story forward. And so at this point, we, the readers now know, ah, the big moment has come. God is bringing his saving plan to a culmination at this moment. We don't know where it's going to go and we don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but we know God is about to do something amazing and great. God is sending his Messiah into the world.